Returning to Isaiah 64, Agley was really thrilled there because Mr. Knowles in his opening prayer quoted from this chapter, Oh, that thou was rend the heavens, that thou was come down. And so we're turning to this chapter uh, this evening. Let's just read the first four verses of the chapter. And it says, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. And we know that God will bless the reading of these verses with his own word to our hearts. Now, the whole chapter contains... Uh, the prayer of the prophet Isaiah. It is prayer that was offered in the name of God's people and for the sake and the well-being of God's people. Isaiah himself was, of course, a man of prayer, a man who knew how to lay hold upon God and therefore undoubtedly could have been, uh, many of his prayers could have been brought before us, uh, never mind this one here, in chapter 64. In Isaiah 37, verse 4, there's a very important statement concerning this man. Is that occasion when Hezekiah and the nation of Judah were under threat from the Assyrians? And we find that the uh, prophet is called on to pray. Isaiah uh, goes to him, or uh, the, the, the king goes to Isaiah, and he says to him, Wherefore, lift up thy prayer. For the remnant that is left. And the point that is made by those words is that prayer was already in the heart of this man Isaiah. He was a man, therefore, who was in touch with God, a man who was in tune with heaven. And the king knew that he could go to him and solicit his prayer support and know that Isaiah could really come to the throne and lay hold upon his God. And furthermore, when you think about the words there, wherefore lift up thy prayer, that's Isaiah 37, 4, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. We see there the idea not only of prayer being in his heart, but prayer being lifted up toward God as a spiritual sacrifice. And of course, that kind of language about lifting up prayer, lifting up our souls to God is found throughout the Old Testament over and over again, especially in the book of Psalms. And you have different verses like Psalm 25 verse 1, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And other verses like that that indicate what prayer actually is. It is the lifting up of what's already in the heart and presenting it as a spiritual sacrifice unto the living God. The psalmist says again in Psalm 141 and verse number 2, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands 
as the evening sacrifice. In the Bible, the lifting up of the hands is symbolic of prayer, and therefore he is referring to prayer in that verse. And so Isaiah was a valuable man to his nation, a valuable man to the cause of Almighty God in those times. He was a man who knew how to approach God. He was a man who was resting in the merit of his own Savior. If you'll just turn back a couple of chapters to Isaiah 61 and verse number 10, here we have a very personal testimony from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 61 verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. You know, we could say about those words that you would think that they were taken straight out of the book of Romans, where Paul discusses and, and sets forth the great doctrine of justification. Because that's exactly what Isaiah is expressing in that verse, where he refers to being clothed in the garments of salvation and wearing the robe of righteousness. But I draw your attention to that verse because Isaiah had a very personal, intimate relationship with his God. And he knows God as his Savior. He knows what it is to be clothed in perfect righteousness, the righteousness of the promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows what it is to be clothed in the robes of salvation. These are wonderful terms. These are gospel terms. Here's a man, therefore, who not only has prayer in his heart, not only lifts it up to heaven when the time comes and he's called on to pray or he leads the congregations that were here in Isaiah 64 to the throne of grace, but he's a man who knows the ground and the basis of seeking the face of God. He is clothed in the righteousness of his Redeemer, and therefore he comes on that basis as we learn from his own words. Down there in verse number four of where we read in this chapter, notice what it says toward the end of that verse, uh, where it refers to him that waiteth for him, that is, the believer who waits for God. And therefore, praying and waiting are brought together here in these words and throughout this great prayer that's offered up by the prophet Isaiah. And the question is, for what do we wait when we wait upon God? When we pray, when we wait on God, what exactly is it that we are looking for? Let me ask you tonight, or just now rather, did you come here tonight with something on your heart, already on your heart? Remember what I've said, Isaiah had prayer already in his heart, and he and he lifted it up to heaven, as we find from those words in chapter 37. And the, the very same is true here. There's something in his heart. There's something that he needs to express, something that he must bring to God. And that's really what prayer is. It's something that's begotten in our hearts, begotten there by the Holy Spirit. And then it's returned to the God who gave it. Some of you may have been familiar with our brother Tom, Tom Laverty, and I always remember Tom praying that way, about prayer being returned to the God who gave it in the first place. And that's exactly 
what is happening here. And that's what prayer is about. So I, I would challenge you tonight. Did you prepare your mind? Did you come here with something on your, in your thoughts about uh, the Lord, the work of God, the souls of men, whatever? And you're here tonight to bring it back to heaven and lift it up and call upon the name of the Lord. So what exactly is it that we are praying for and waiting for as we come to seek the Lord, whether it's now or any other time? There are three very simple thoughts I want to leave with you. I don't know how far I will get, but we will uh, try here. Number one, uh, there's the matter of intervention. And these are the words that Mr. Knowles uh, repeated in prayer or used in prayer tonight already. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens there in verse number one. And that's a, a, an expression that has to do with intervention, God intervening. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, it goes on to say, and come down. Now, the word rend, very, very familiar, very uh, frequently used in the Old Testament. The very first time the Hebrew word that's translated rend here, because there are different Hebrew words that are rendered rend, the, the one that's used here is first used in Genesis 37 and verse number 29 with reference to the rending of garments. And it's Reuben who comes back. Remember the story there. He had been away at some point or for a period uh, when the brothers, his brothers, were deciding what to do with Joseph and they had sold him uh, to the Midianites, the merchant men who came along and Reuben came and, went in, and looked into the pit where they had put him at the first and he wasn't there and his heart is distraught, and we're told that he rent his garments. And so that's the first time this Hebrew word is actually used. It's used with regard to the rending of garments. And so when you think about that, and you think about how throughout the Old Testament, in reference to prayer, various people are actually seen rending their garments as they're uh, moved as they are burdened, as they have uh, great matters to think about and deal with in life, and they go before the Lord and they rend their garments. In the book of Joel, you find the word used there, where the people are instructed, rend your hearts and not your garments. You see, rending the garments is just a symbolic gesture. But what's really needed is our hearts to be rent and broken and moved deeply by the situation that we face. And here's the prophet, and he's calling upon the Lord that he will rend the heavens, that God therefore will intervene in answer to prayer, and he will rend the heavens, and he will uh, make himself known. Now, when you think about that, very, think about it deeply, think about it intimately in your mind now. What does it, what does it infer to you? It infers that the heavens are shut. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. That means the heavens are closed. And, of course, in the days when Isaiah lived, remember he, he ministered mainly to Judah, and he ministered before the captivity, and he ministered about the sin of the nation and what was coming as a result of that sin, and his heart was burdened, and he knew that heaven was closed because of the sin of the people of his own nation, his own people. And the point is... It's not the sin of the pagan and the heathen around them that he's praying about or the situation that uh, sin comes about whenever sin shuts heaven. It's the sin of God's people. That's the alarming thing. That's the matter to notice. 
And you see, our sins can shut heaven. And that's unfair, as I say, because he prays that the Lord would rend the heavens. And the Bible does speak about the heavens being shut. And you find that in different places. I'm going to turn you to the verses where you find that. It's very, very common. And God actually says that because of sin, he will shut heaven. It's used in the physical context. In Deuteronomy, for example, it's used there in chapter 11. God's shutting heaven because of the sin of his people so that there's no rain. And therefore, when you think about the, uh, the, the uh, thoughts that are there, the, the sequence of thoughts, heaven closed, no rain, the cry to God to rend the heavens, and move and work again. You can see what is going on. Sin shuts heaven. Sin closes us away from the presence of God. Sin prohibits the blessing of God, symbolized by the rain, to refresh the land, to cause the crops to grow. And of course that can happen literally, and does happen literally across the face of the world. God closes heaven, and there's no rain in many places. And that's because God is judging nations continually for their sin, their wickedness, and their ungodliness. We sometimes grumble about how much rain we get. But let me tell you something. If God closed the heavens here, it would be a different cry. And it certainly could happen because God, even while we're an island and we're surrounded by ocean, and that's the reason why we have so much rain, physically speaking. But... If God so designed it and so worked, he could close heaven and there would be no rain. And what a cry would go up then when the little island in which we live would be barren and, and ridden with drought and all of the parched situation that would come as a result. Even though we might be surrounded by oceans, God could still shut the heavens and there be no rain. But in the spiritual sense, the closed heaven signifies the displeasure of God. It's there because of sin, the sin of the people, and therefore there's no answer. It's a matter of the heavens not only being shut, but a matter of the heavens being silent. And that again is seen here in the, in the plea, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. And there's a thought not only of heaven shut, as I say, but the heaven actually silent. And this is a further aspect of the plea that Isaiah makes here uh, for the rending of the heavens. There's a silence. God is no longer speaking. A silent heaven is a mark of days when apostasy reigns and prevails. Let me turn you to 1 Kings 18. We will go there to 1 Kings 18 and, and you'll know this story, but just to show it to you. First Kings chapter 18 and verse number 26. And there the prophets of Baal are crying to their God, that is the God whose name Baal. And it says in verse 26, they called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. Then go down to verse 29. When midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, and there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. You know, that last reference in verse 29 is very, very telling. It says, there was neither voice. It's a little different from what you have in verse 26, where it says, there was no voice 
And then it says, nor any that answered. But here it's actually uh, amplified. It says, there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And what has really been said there is, they're crying to a God who doesn't exist. They're praying to someone who has no being, namely Baal. Because let's get it straight, men and women, the gods of the heathen don't exist. The one who's really behind idolatry is the devil. The Bible makes that absolutely clear. And when pagan people and heathen people pray to their gods and pray to imaginary beings, they're actually praying to Satan, even though they would not admit that, nor do they know it probably. But they're praying to the powers of hell. Because there's no such person as Baal, no such person as Moloch, or all the other heathen gods mentioned in Scripture. And there's no such person as Buddha. Yeah, maybe a man lived whenever and was called Buddha, but he's dead and gone. And Muhammad is dead and gone. And so when the heathen pray to their gods, they're praying foolishly, they're praying aimlessly. There's nobody going to hear them, nobody going to answer them. And so you see a silent heaven. And the, 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 the matter of the heaven being silent is an awful thing. It's a blight upon uh, the hearts of men and it's a, a curse upon society because of sin and wickedness and idolatry. There's no answer. If you could stay there in First Kings a moment, First Kings chapter 18, and look now at verse 36. First Kings 18, verse 36. We just saw there in verse 29 that they came, these gods, these Baal worshippers are praying, as it says in verse 29, at the time, right until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Then go down to verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, that I am thy servant, that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And what you find there is that heaven was rent. Heaven had been closed even to Israel. Uh, with regard to God himself, he has withdrawn himself. He's no longer speaking or hasn't been speaking for some time. And they cry to Baal. And of course, Baal doesn't exist as we've seen. And there's no answer from Baal. And what's needed here is an answer from the true God. That's the vital thing. You see, it would have been awful if Elijah had prayed and there had been no answer. Then the heathen would have mocked him. The heathen would have laughed at, at Elijah for praying and his God not answering. And all the while, Elijah has made it known that his God is the true God. His God is the living God. And Elijah needs an answer. He needs heaven rent. He needs the skies to open up and the Lord display his glory and his power. And that's exactly what happened. And you see, it happened at the time of the evening the offering of the evening sacrifice. That's the time when the Baal worshippers stopped. That's very significant. They stopped at that moment. 
And that's when Elijah stepped forward and he prayed and the answer came. Now, what's the significance about the Baal worshippers stopping at that moment? Well, I believe with all my heart that that God prevented them from praying any longer because the time has come for the true God to be revealed and the true God is revealed on the ground of the atonement on the ground of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that evening sacrifice was one of the most wonderful pictures or types of the sacrifice of the cross. And that's the time when heaven was opened. That's the time the Lord came down on Carmel in the fire that we read about there that consumed the sacrifice, verse 38. And the result was, you look at verse 39, When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, or Jehovah, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And so the silence has ended and the shut heavens are now open and God answers and God sends the fire to consume the sacrifice and then following the fire, He sends the rain. See, sometimes we get it all wrong in interpreting 1 Kings 18. We need to get it right. The fire symbolizes the cross. The fire is not a symbol of revival in 1 Kings 18. It's a symbol of the cross. The rain that came then, after the fire had fallen, it's a symbol of revival. But the cross comes first And you say there's no revival without the cross. There's no rain. There's no uh, blessing. There's nothing that's going to water the souls of men unless, first of all, Calvary has taken place. But we rejoice tonight that Calvary has taken place. And therefore, as Isaiah prays, and he cries to God to rend the heavens. He's praying for intervention where we are being reminded of the basis upon which God intervenes and uh, the basis upon which he steps in. He always steps in on the basis of the sacrifice offered and accepted, and then he sends the blessing. Intervention and and. Going back to Isaiah 64, Isaiah is looking for intervention. Now, I don't have to tell you, but I do need to remind you that heaven is shut and heaven is silent to a great degree. Well, yes, there are mercy drops and there are places in the world where God is mightily at work, but He's not at work in our nation. Heaven is shut and heaven is silent. And therefore, what do we do? Are you looking for an open heaven? Are you praying day by day for God to come? Whatever words you use, whatever particular line of thought you employ as you pray, are you before your God crying that He will rend the heavens and that He will move again in answer to the cries of His people? So there's intervention. Then very quickly, there's visitation. It says, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. And he's actually pleading with the Lord to open up the heavens and to come down, as it says here. And those words 
do therefore underline the, the truth of visitation. It's personal visitation that thou wouldst come down. And it's powerful visitation. For it goes on to say that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Just dwell with that a moment or two. This visitation, as I say, is personal. That thou wouldst come down. That is the essence of all revival, all awakening. God coming down afresh. The Lord moving in a new way again among His people or among folk and society all around us. This is what we look for. This is what we want. We want God's personal visitation. The Lord visiting His church. And let me tell you, that's needed first. Do you realize, do you feel tonight that you need your heart visited by God to drive away all the deadness and coldness or whatever's there that shouldn't be there? You need the Lord to visit your brother or sister and you should be praying for that. Lord, rend the heavens, intervene and intervene in my life. Come down and visit me. It's personal visitation. The Lord himself coming Isaiah wants that. He wants the Lord to come to him and to come to his people, the, 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 the people of God in those days. And then, as I say, it's powerful visitation that the mountains might flow down at thy presence as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And when you think about those words, and we call it powerful visitation, not only the Lord's people feeling and sensing that the Lord's at work, the Lord's on the move, the Lord has come, the Lord is visiting. And God's people do sense that when, when the Lord does visit. But he goes on to pray that the ungodly will sense it. It says there, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Visitation by God will bring all this about, and we want tonight to, to come before the Lord and look for this and pray for this, that there will not only be intervention, the rending of the heavens, but visitation by God in His own mighty power to His own people and to the ungodly around us, because they have no thought of God. They have no interest in God. They hate the things of God. They love their sin. They want to remain in their sin, etc., etc. And therefore, we need the Lord to come to cause men to tremble, to cause sinners to feel that they're in the presence of God, maybe for the very first time to sense the reality of God and the awfulness of God and the holiness of God. That's what makes men tremble because thereby their sin is exposed to them. And they are brought to a sense of their awful iniquity and their awful uncleanness of nature and of life. And how that needs to happen. And I pray that tonight the Lord will come and enable us to pray to that end. And then, thirdly and finally, there's revelation. Look at verse number 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceive by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth 
for him. And I say this is revelation because the sense of verse 4 is that no human faculty is able to explain God or the operation of God. But when God moves, then there's a revelation of who He is, what He's able to do, and a revelation in terms of of showing and demonstrating His glory, His majesty, as He works among men. You see, it says there in that fourth verse, from the beginning, or since the beginning of the world, men have not heard. Now, there's a wonderful verse, a lovely verse, a very important verse. The world had a beginning. But at the beginning, there was the fall. And that's what's in view here. As a result of the fall, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. In other words, the fall of man has caused man to become deaf spiritually and, or sorry, blind spiritually and deaf spiritually and, and so on. And, uh, and furthermore, without understanding. That's what that verse is saying. Men do not understand God. They're dark, they're blind, they're deaf. And for that to change, God must come and reveal Himself. Now, you will know those words, perhaps not so much here in this setting, but Over in 1 Corinthians 2, you have Paul actually cite these verses, use them in his great uh, exposition in that chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, But as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2 verse number 9, But as it is written, and where is it written? It's written in in Isaiah 64 verse 4. And what's written there? So he says, as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. It's a little different in how it's written here or quoted here, but it's the same principle. It's the same, got the same meaning. And I know I've preached in that verse, and perhaps you've heard other men preach on it as well, but I must say again, This verse is terribly misunderstood, completely misunderstood. Most preachers, I have to say this, or I've heard them, will take this verse and they'll tell you this verse is addressed to the Christian and it's telling the Christian that what heaven's like, we don't know anything about it. And it's got nothing to do with heaven. This verse is addressing Man as unregenerate and lost. And because he's in that state, then the eye of man, the ear of man, the heart of man is in darkness and is is closed to everything that God is and all is truth in the whole gospel. That's what the verse is saying. And that's actually proved by verse 10. But... God hath revealed them unto us. Who are the us in verse 10? Christians like you. How did you come to understand what the heathen don't understand or what religious Protestants don't understand or whoever you care to mention? How did you come to understand it? Because God revealed it to you by the Holy Ghost. 
And that's why your eye now, I mean your spirit you'll eye, and your spirit you'll ear, and your spirit you'll heart. That's why in those realms of your being, you now understand. You understand the gospel. You understand the way of salvation. You know God. You love God. You seek to follow the Lord, etc., etc. That's what Paul says. God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. It's as clear as can be. And so that's what Isaiah's talking about. And so in the original setting of these words, in chapter 64 of Isaiah verse 4, he's saying the very same thing, that from the time that man fell, man has been left in darkness, deafness, lost. And that only changes when God intervenes and God visits and God reveals himself. And that's what we need. So, I asked you a question earlier. What was in your heart in coming to this prayer meeting tonight? I believe you're here because you've got a burden, you've got a longing, and maybe you don't put it in the words I've used tonight. That's fine. But you're here tonight because you do know we need God to intervene. We need God to visit. We need God to reveal himself and his truth, his power, his son, the gospel to a lost world. Ah, oh, men and women, this is fundamental. This is vital. This is why the ministers are meeting this week at the week of prayer. Let me tell you something. It has been a blessed few days. And the Lord has come very near. And the preaching has been tremendous. And we are meeting with God there. And he's meeting with us. And we want that to be felt here and throughout our churches and in society. And therefore, the Lord laid upon my heart these verses just to leave with you tonight. And I trust that he will bless his word to us and that he will write it upon our minds powerfully, even as we've looked at it on this occasion. Let's just have a word of prayer, please. And we will come then to sing a verse or two of another hymn. Then Mr. Stewart will make some announcements. So, Father, we thank Thee that Thou art God, and Thou art our God. We rejoice, O Lord, that Thou hast intervened in our lives, and You've visited our souls. And, Lord, You've revealed Yourself to us. And, Lord, we thank Thee for that, because otherwise we would be as dark and deaf spiritually as the next man. O God, we pray for others. We pray for a moving of the Holy Ghost. Lord, let it begin, we pray, in these very days. Lord, they may avoid thy law. And we cry to thee to step in and to move in power, to move in all thy blessed fullness. Here as we pray, abide with us, continue with us, now as we wait at thy feet. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen.